What Not the Podcast, April the 12th, 2022, Holy Tuesday. Pastor Wolfmuller here. Uh, here's a little conversation about the events of Holy Tuesday and a question about, is Paul or Matthias the right apostle? Uh, great question. Really wonderful. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Holy Tuesday. This is probably the, well, this is the last public teaching day of Jesus. And so of all the days of Holy Week, this has the most material. We're looking at um, basically Matthew chapter 22 to 25. So 22, 23, 24, 25. Where's chapter 23? How come that's on my list? That, that whole section there. Also, uh, Mark 12 and 13, Luke 20 and 21. So the last, uh, the, the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, which is Matthew 24, 25, where he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and also his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. His, uh, the, the five great, or sorry, the three great parables of the judgment that come in Matthew 25, the five wise, five foolish virgins, uh, the talents, and the sheep and the goats. That's all in Holy Tuesday. Uh, the main thing that happens, and we we're able to figure out that this is Holy Tuesday, again from Mark 11, 19 to 26, where the fig tree is cursed on one day and withered on the other. So we're able to, to sort out these three days, the triumphal entry, the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, the, the last kind of conversation from from the Mark text and the whole, the, how Mark is, he's really interested in this fig tree. I want to focus in on the, the sort of last public dispute that Jesus has with the Pharisees because they're trying to trap him. And so they, um, they come with three assaults. Maybe there was more, but three are given to us in the Gospels. The first is they come and they sort of butter Jesus up and they ask him the question about paying taxes. They think that they can get him on this because if he's the actual Messiah, he never would approve of paying taxes to Caesar. After all, he's supposed to throw off the Romans. That's what they thought about the Messiah. And yet, on the other hand, uh, if if he says you should, can't pay taxes to Caesar, then just get him arrested and Pilate will put him in prison. So they think they got him there. But Jesus, so beautiful. He says, show me the tax. I think, you know, they weren't supposed to have this kind of money in the temple. I have a theory. This might not be true. But I have a theory that because they had, this, they had these temple shekels that they would use that didn't have any images on them, trying to keep the law in their pharisaical kind of way. And, but the, what they would do is they would change the money so you would go in with your Roman money, and you needed some temple money, so you'd have to exchange it, and they could inflate the price to whatever they wanted. It's like going to McDonald's in the airport. You know, you're stuck. So they were making tons of money on the exchange rate, and Jesus overthrew the money changers' tables the day before. <laughs> so now they come and they say, should you pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, let me see your money. And now they, they got to turn out their pockets, and they're like, oops. I got my Caesar money here in the temple. <laughs> I'm, I'm busted. Now, maybe it's because they couldn't exchange it. But maybe it's because they didn't exchange it anyways. 
Then Jesus says, whose image is that? Whose icon? And they say Caesar's. And Jesus beautifully, famously says, give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to God. So the Pharisees are sat in their place in about four different ways. He, that's just a smackdown. So the, so the Sadducees, who were always arguing against the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees were the lay theologians. Uh, they were the synagogue theologians. They were, God will accept the, my righteousness as a sacrifice. The Sadducees were the priests, mostly, the priesthood, and the, those the, the, the priestly theologians, and they were always fighting with each other. The Pharisees, for example, believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees um, believed the prophets were authoritative. The Sadducees did not. They mostly had just the books of Moses. Uh, the Pharisees believed in angels. The Sadducees did not. So there was a a big dispute going on between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you got to think the Sadducees see the Pharisees try to trap Jesus. I mean, they're they're believe me, they are all united in trying to get rid of Jesus. So even though they were enemies, the, Jesus made them cooperate. But you got to think that the that the Sadducees are kind of pleased to see the Pharisees humbled a little bit. They kind of smile and they say, okay, now it's our turn. So they go with their best question, their great anti-resurrection question that they had stumped the Pharisees with, no doubt, time and time again. And so a certain of the said, I'm, I'm in Luke 20, verse 27, uh, they came to him of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her to wife, and he died childless, and the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. Now you see what they're doing here. They don't believe in the resurrection. So they've invented this scenario from the law of Moses to supposedly disprove the resurrection. You got to wonder about the story though, like how brother number five or something has been to his four older brother's funerals and now he's getting married to this lady. Like how bad is her cooking? Anyhow. That's probably not the point. So Jesus responds, this is also great. He's going to sit the Sadducees down. Uh, it says here, where is it? Uh, Jesus answered and said to him, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore. For they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, so Jesus answers this question, says, look, in the resurrection there's no marriage. More about that in a minute, but Jesus continues. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answered, said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they dared not ask any questions at all. Well, there's one more. Uh, 
Uh, but this is a, uh, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But here, this is the idea in the resurrection is that we become like the angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage. There's no children that are born. Kind of the number is locked in. So the generations are completed. I was reading last year Luther's commentary on Genesis, and he speculates a little bit, which is, I'll grant you, not really safe, but he speculates a little bit about what would have happened if Adam and Eve would not have eaten the tree of the garden. And he gathers together a bunch of thoughts from the fathers and basically says that that Adam and Eve would have grown into some glorious creatures like the angels, that they would have had children for a while and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They would have raised them, and but they would have continued to to grow and strengthen and glory so that they would have uh, attained a sort of, not a, an, a sort of angelic life, angelic glory in wisdom, in joy, in, in comfort and peace. And, and uh, the fall kind of went the other way. So instead of growing in glory, they were now bound to corruption. But that the resurrection of Jesus kind of gets us there. The resurrection gets us to where we were intended to get if the fall never would have happened. So it's not a bodily-less life because we'll be in our bodies, but our bodies will be glorious. Think maybe of Jesus and the transfiguration. Okay. Okay, so Jesus answers them. Well, oh, and then this beautiful argument where uh, he says to the Sadducees, remember how Moses calls God the God of the living, or God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And remember how God is God of the living, not God of the dead? Well, that must mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. That death doesn't bring us to an end, like you Sadducees teach. So they're stumped too. You got I, I just... I can't help but thinking of the reaction of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the the scribes, or so the Sadducees see the Pharisees get stumped. They kind of smirk, and then they're like, "Oh wait, we're not rooting for Jesus." And then the the Pharisees see the Sadducees get stumped, and they smirk a little bit. But then they're like, "Oh wait a minute, we were hoping that they could get Jesus." A lawyer then comes up to Jesus. This would be in Matthew, and he says, "What's the greatest commandment?" This is a question that stumped both the scribes and Pharisees, and Jesus just answers it like without even missing a beat. He says, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's like it, love your neighbors yourself. On these all, hang all the law and the prophets. Beautiful, just beautiful. So then they stop asking Jesus questions. So he says, okay, now you guys, I got a question for you. And he goes to Psalm 110. He said unto them, how say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself, well, in fact, in Matthew, it says, whose son is the Christ? They say David's. Then, then Jesus says, how say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore called him Lord. How is he then his son? <laughs> This is so great. It's a great riddle. The Psalm 110 is a riddle-solving, riddle-giving psalm. I love these riddles. The riddle that it solves is how can the Messiah be both king and priest? After all, the kings are from Judah and from David, and the priests are from Levi, and the two are separate from one another. You can't be both. 
So Psalm 110 answers, says he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Beautiful. But then it gives this other riddle. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. So David is talking about the Messiah, and the rabbis understood this to be messianic. But David calls the Messiah his Lord, and Jesus says, how can he call him his Lord if he's his son? You would never call your son your Lord. (laughs) And they don't know what to do. They're stumped. Now we, even the confirmands, know how to answer this question. Because Jesus is true God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, and he's my Lord, uh, who has redeemed me, and so forth. So that Jesus is able to call, David is able to call Jesus his Lord, because not only is he his son, but he is also God of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, two natures in one person. The Pharisees could have never gotten there. They were denying the incarnation, denying that Jesus was God in the flesh, resisting him totally, so they couldn't see it. Uh, but this is the dispute. Well, the, well, this is the dispute that ends the dispute. And no longer will the Pharisees attempt to trick or trap Jesus. They recognize at this point that he can't be trapped. And now all their plotting becomes malicious. That's uh, Holy Tuesday. So if you're reading through uh, this, it's great. Matthew 22, 23, 24, 25, Mark 12, 13, Luke 20, 21. Uh, You'll get your Holy Tuesday uh, stuff. Here's a question from Greg who asks, uh, Dear Pastor Wolfmuller, was St. Paul the true 12th apostle rather than Matthias? Matthias was chosen to replace Judas by the other 11 apostles. This was before Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit and corresponding additional discernment. Jesus selected the original 12 apostles and he selected St. Paul to be an apostle, Romans 1.1. The logic St. Peter uses in Acts 1.20, quoting Psalms, may another take his office, could have been fulfilled by Jesus choosing Paul rather than the other apostles selecting Matthias. St. Paul seems like the anti-Judas in purpose. Judas was a close, trusted, at least seemingly by the other apostles, follower of Jesus. St. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Judas put into motion the passion of Jesus through betrayal. St. Paul, after his conversion, was key in expanding Christ's church in the world. May the Lord's peace be with you, Greg uh, asks. Greg, wonderful question. The answer is, I don't know. There's no... There's no indication to me in the book of Acts that Peter and the other apostles acted wrongly in appointing Matthias to be the apostle to take Judas' place. So uh, I, I'm, I don't have reason for saying that they acted wrongly or foolishly or that they did something that they were not supposed to do. Although it does seem like the Apostles were all directly called by Jesus, and St. Paul has that mark of being directly called uh, by Jesus. Paul certainly is an apostle, and he's part of the 12, although he would then be the 13th of 12, or maybe even the 14th of 12, because Judas was one of the 12, even though he was gone. But we do understand that those apostles had unique offices, and that upon their death, their offices were not filled. So um, 
The Mormon Church believes that that apostolic offices remains today. The Catholic Church has something like that in their hierarchy. Uh, we understand that the apostles were uniquely called and uniquely gifted for that first generation of the church, and that now we pastors are the sons of the apostles. Like in the Old Testament, you had the sons of the prophets, and that those who were uh, called and um, and had their hand, they, hands laid on to for ordination for those guys, that they now enter into a distinct office from the office of apostle. Who reflects really wonderfully on this is Martin Chemnitz, who makes this distinction between those who are directly called by God and those who are indirectly called by God, or the immediate call and the mediated call. And the prophets and the apostles had an immediate call. They were called directly by God. In the New Testament, the apostles directly by Jesus. Even Paul, who the Lord appeared to on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? It's Jesus, who you persecute. Quit kicking against the goads. Get with, get with the program. And then he becomes an, he's blinded and then baptized. The scales fall off his eyes and, and he becomes an apostle. These are the direct calls, and it seems like that whenever needed, those who are directly called by God are also given gifts to indicate their direct call, chiefly miracles, what are sometimes called the sign gifts. In the Old Testament, the, the pro prophets, for example, were working miracles and could prophesy the future, and their promises would come true, indicating their direct call by God. That's not the case for those who are called in a mediated way, or called um, uh, called through the church, like the sons of the prophets, or the sons of the apostles, the pastors. So, um, to confirm my call, the Lord doesn't give the gift of miracles. The Lord has given the gift of the scripture. So how do you know, for example, that the sons of the prophets are preaching right? Well, they're preaching what Moses preached. And how do we know that the sons of the apostles, pastors today, are preaching right? Well, they preach what the apostles preach. So uh, the church is able to listen to the preaching that they hear and compare it to the prophets and the apostles, those called immediately by God, and say, is it right or is it wrong? So uh, that's telling you everything that I know about this, but also that I don't know. So I don't know if I don't know if the apostles did wrong. I can't say that they did, uh, but we can say that certainly Paul was an apostle and the last apostle. He calls himself one untimely born. Well, yeah, that's kind of nice, actually, that we know that there are not going to be any more apostles because Paul himself indicates that. Hmm. Ah, just thought of that. That's nice. Great question. Uh, keep them coming. God's peace be with you. Want to try this? Something beautiful? I'll read a hymn for you. Right on, right on in majesty. I was trying to read this hymn. It's a beautiful poem. I was trying to read it yesterday. I'm just going to try. It's it's actually kind of a tough one, but we'll see if we can do it. Right on, right on in majesty. I'm reading from TLH, hymn 162. This was by Henry Millman, 1827 maybe. Right on. Ride on in majesty. 
Hark, all the tribes, Hosanna cry. O Savior meek, pursue thy road with palms and scattered garments strode. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. O Christ, thy triumphs now begin or captive death and conquered sin. Ride on, ride on in majesty. The angel armies of the sky look down with sad and wandering eyes to see the approaching sacrifice. Ride on, ride on in majesty. The last and fiercest strife is nigh. The father on a sapphire throne expects his own anointed son. Ride on, ride on in majesty. In lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow thy meek head to mortal pain. Then take, O Christ, thy power and reign. Amen. Oh, the captivating line from the, the whole hymn is encouraging Jesus on the way to suffering. The captivating line is in lowly pomp, ride on to die twice in the hymn. But the one that gets me every time is the father on his sapphire throne expects his own anointed son. The father's expect the father's waiting for you. So Jesus, keep, you know, it's this encouragement. Keep going. The father's waiting. You'll be there soon. It's amazing. Well, Jesus did. He wrote on. He, in lowly pomp, went on to die, all for us. God be praised. Thanks for being along for the ride. God, peace be with you on this Holy Tuesday. Hope you have some time to read some of these Bible passages. Dig into Matthew 22, 23, 24, 25. Remember when you're looking at Matthew 24, that Jesus is answering two questions. He's first, they, you know, they leave the temple. They, the disciples are, look at how big these rocks are. They're amazed by it. And Jesus says, hey, these aren't going to be one on top of the other pretty soon. And so the disciples ask two questions. What are this, when's this going to happen? And what are the signs of the end of the age? And so Jesus answers both questions. He kind of weaves them together. Jerusalem destroyed on August 10th, the year 70. And his return in glory, we're still waiting for that. So those days and that day is the distinction to look for there when you're untangling and thinking about those texts. I hope you have some time today to take a look at those uh, and enjoy them. Otherwise, uh, may the Lord continue to bless and keep you, watch over you and bless you. Don't forget to go to your pastor's Bible study this week. Although, I, I wonder if he has it. We don't even have Sunday school on Sunday because of Easter. All the other, the service kind of usurps the Bible study time. But if you don't have a church, a pastor teaching Sunday school, then let us know. If you go to wolfmuller.co, there's a button on there, find a church or something like that. And we've got a team of volunteers who, who will just look for the city where you live or the country where you live and and help find a good faithful church as close as they can to you so if you don't have one of those then let us know we're here here for you i think that's all today god's peace be with you